Again, I, I, excuse me, I didn't even introduce myself earlier, and on account of being sick for the last few weeks, you may have forgotten who I am. My name's Jameson. Thank you all for your patience, your loving kindness and support, as the Parker House has pretty much turned into ground zero for whatever's going around this area. Um, I apologize if you have caught in some after effects of it from us, but we so appreciate your love, your kindness, your support, and I'm so glad to be back with you on a Sunday morning. Um, it's good to be amidst the body of Christ that God has called us to, uh, and it's so pleasurable to see many of your smiling faces, and if they're not smiling yet, I hope they will be in a little bit. <laughs> and this morning, we have the opportunity to continue our journey through Paul's letter to the church near Ephesus, and we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open up and follow along with me because I always want you to see that these are not my thoughts or ideas. You don't need my thoughts and ideas. You need the thoughts, the ideas, the inspired word of God more than you need any human creature. So please follow along with me in your Bibles. As you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us one last time. Father, we thank you so much that you are on the throne. We thank you that you are holy and perfect and powerful and that you have seen fit to mercifully and by your grace draw needy sinners like us towards yourself through faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you that when we open your word, we hear directly from you. You're inspired, you're inerrant, this perfect breathed out word meant to make us wise into salvation and train us for works and righteousness. And so we pray for nothing less. We pray for nothing less than hearing from you today, God. We ask that your spirit and your word would guide this time. We ask that you would guard my heart and my mouth from saying anything that would, would not make much of Jesus and that I would say only what glorifies you. And I pray that we would retain in our hearts, not just our thoughts, our ears, our minds, but in our hearts, these truths that you seek to impress upon us, that they would fuel affection for you, not just fill us with knowledge about you. We long for that too, but we long for affection in you, Lord. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. How many times have you heard the words, don't forget? Don't forget. Yeah. (laughs) Feel free to nudge the person to your left and your right. (laughs) Don't forget. I've, I've heard it. Don't forget. Take off your shoes when you come in. Don't forget. Josiah needs a diaper changed five minutes ago. Don't forget to announce children's church. (laughs) You're free to tell me that whenever you want. Don't forget is the refrain of many of our lives because we are quick to forget many things, even the basics. It's so interesting that Paul uses three succinct verses in verse 8 to 10 as a sort of pastoral reminder. He's writing to the church, this former persecutor, now turned pastor, preaches from prison in 62 AD to the church near Ephesus, and he's telling them, don't forget Don't forget how salvation works. See, we've carefully unpacked verse 1 to 7 to get to this point, and you're going to hear some things that sound familiar in light of the last few weeks, but there's some things that we can't forget. Paul is saying, don't forget how salvation works. Don't forget you've been saved by grace. Don't forget it's only the immeasurable power and the rich mercy of God that unites you and saves you. Don't forget you were dead in sin, but God made you alive in Christ. Oh, church, don't forget. Lest we ever be people who forget how salvation has come to us, we would be people who forget how to live in this world unto God's glory. 
See, that's why Paul's reminding us. He's giving us these reminders of who we are in Christ in order to guide what we do through Christ. Ephesians is all about identity-guiding activity. Identity-guiding activity. Chapters 1 to 3, Paul slowly and carefully unpacks what it means to be united to Christ, not just vaguely familiar with or aware of, like some textbook-like subject, but united to him, made one with him. And it's only because, or it's because once we know we're united with Christ, then our activity through and for Christ changes. And that's what we hear in chapters 4 to 6. Identity guiding activity, the wealth of Christ directing our walk for Christ. And so I admit, we have taken the scenic route through this letter. We have taken the pedestrian pace, glacial at times it seems, but I promise there's a point to it. I want us to walk slowly through this wondrous letter that Paul has written to the church near Ephesus so that we would savor deeply all of the promises that God has for us in Christ. Because if we don't, we're going to be quick to forget. We're going to be quick to forget that our union with Christ now directs our walk with Christ. We're going to be quick to forget that we were dead in sin, as verse 1 to 3 says. We're going to be quick to forget that God makes us alive in Christ. What a glorious reality, alive in Christ. And today, the reminder that you've been gifted to glorify. You've been gifted with this wondrous gift of salvation, not to pad your spiritual resume, but to glorify the God who saved you. Don't forget, church. You've been gifted to glorify. And in these three verses, we are going to see three components of what it means to be gifted to glorify. We're going to see this gracious salvation. Don't forget, you've been given a gracious salvation. Second, don't forget, it's come to you by means of a generous gift, not your works. A generous gift from God to you. And then don't forget, you've been created for a purpose for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Don't forget, you've been gifted to glorify. And first, don't forget, you've received a gracious salvation. Let's begin in verse 8. Turn with me. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved, saved, rescued, through faith. The idea of rescue is so clearly in this first half of verse 8. If you remember with me, Last year, the world was kind of got together, coupled together collectively in support of the rescue of that team of soccer players in Thailand, the teenage boys, who found themselves marooned in this abandoned cave. I'll remind you what happened if you forgot. These 13-year-old boys want to do what 13-year-old boys do after soccer practice, get on their bikes. They weren't tired yet. So they get on their bikes, pedaled into this remote cave as if that's a good idea. And yet... In a land like Thailand, where there's a thing called monsoon season, this previously dry cave quickly became submerged and immersed amidst water. 13-year-old boys with their young coach stranded in a little pocket of air in a cave separated from the life in the air that they, they needed to live. And interestingly, here comes a local connection. You may have known this too. The owner of Thai D restaurant over in Marion Yes, we've all enjoyed the food there. The owner of Thai D Restaurant not only can serve incredible food and, and run a successful restaurant, but somehow he has this acumen and ability to organize and engineering concepts. 
And he happened to be over in Thailand while this happened, and so they contracted him to help with the rescue efforts. And he wisely put together a team of naval divers who risked their lives, one actually did die, risked their lives to swim underneath these murky waters beneath cavernous terrains to rescue these boys. Something that 13-year-olds without scuba diving training in tanks couldn't do. Something that they needed to be done for them. Something they didn't deserve. Something, a problem they created, but now receiving rescue from someone stepping in to do what they couldn't. A gracious rescue. An obvious overlaps to the gospel, but still falls short, far short of what God has done for us in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, by nature and by choice, we have peddled our way away from God's presence. We have swum our, sw- swum, swam, co- correct, don't forget, don't forget, whatever the thesaurus says, you go with that. We have swam ourselves away from God's presence and our sin. We've desired our glory instead of his. We've doubted his goodness. We've disobeyed his commands. And we know this to be true because it happened all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sank their confidence. They sank their hopes into the lies that Satan offered instead of clinging to their eternal hope and the truth that God put forward. And that's the nature we're born with. Paul says in Romans 3 to 5, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one person to your left, to your right, or in the mirror has not fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. As sin has entered the world through one man, so death entered through sin, and so all have sinned. We would naturally be separated in caves of sinful isolation from God. Separated from the God who is perfectly holy and just. We deserve his wrath, condemnation, separation from him. We need the naval diver, spiritually speaking, to come to us, to rescue us. We can't swim our way out. We peddled ourselves into a real big problem. But don't forget, God rescues sinners. Don't forget, God's grace comes to us who deserve his wrath. And Paul is explicit with his words, by grace you have been saved. Grace is one of these words that we like to put on t-shirts, bumper stickers, and cards, and we can quickly forget the depth of its meaning. Here's a real quick and easy way to remember it that someone else came up with a little acronym. Who doesn't love acronyms? Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Pretty good. God's riches at Christ's expense. And it makes total sense in light of what we heard last week. God, who is rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. His grace is demonstrated, poured out through Christ. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. God's grace comes to us in Jesus Christ. His expense, his life in our place on our behalf. Jesus condescends. He leaves eternal comfort to rescue us from our human depravity. He swims those murky waters into our isolated cave to pull us out to do something that we couldn't do on our own. In Thailand, no Joe Smith with a scuba diving mask could have rescued those boys. 
It wasn't going to happen that way. A professional expert was needed. In our sinful state, we can cling to and hope in no one but Jesus Christ. And here's why. Only Jesus, the God-man, lived the perfect life that you and I failed to, but were required to by God's law. Only Jesus, the God-man, could offer his holy life as a perfect sacrifice in death to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. The kind of death that even if we died with that intent, we couldn't offer it because we're not holy. And then Jesus, only Jesus, who rose from the dead after three days, can prove that he has power that none of us could ever dream of. He put death to death. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. There is more power in him than there could ever be in all of us combined. And did you hear what Paul says? By grace, you have been saved. Not just cleaned up. Not just made better. Not just given enough to put on a smile on Sunday morning and check off the church attendance box. You've been saved because you needed to be saved. It's a total good news. A total salvation. Not, it's as if we would have said, you know what, those divers in Thailand, I'm going to bring those kids halfway up to the water and then tell them, good luck, here's a scuba diving tank, I hope you can make it the rest of the way yourself. That's not what God has done. God has found us and brought us all the way into presence with him, himself, and he's secured it for eternity. He has first justified us. He's made us right with God, taken our sins from us and imputed to us, given to us Christ's righteousness, the ultimate exchange that we need. Our sins taken, his righteousness given, made right with God. And he continues to sanctify us. It gets better. He gives us his spirit that lives in us. You should think about that. The spirit of the living God is alive and active in every single one of those people who are his believers and followers united to Christ. And what's his spirit doing? Working in and with us to conform us to the character of Christ. (laughs) He doesn't want us to just remain as we were. He's recreating us in Christ. Justified, sanctified, and we will be glorified. After three days and being in that tomb, Jesus was brought up from the grave. You know what that means for you and I if we are in Christ? we too will rise from the tomb. How quick are we to forget that? And yet when we remember it, how much hope does that offer? See, salvation, by grace you've been saved. Not just made better. You've been justified, are being sanctified, will be glorified. You've been saved, church. Don't forget. Don't forget. And don't forget, this this half of the verse ends with, it's through faith alone. It's through faith alone. Salvation comes through God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Faith, like like grace, can often be heard but easily misunderstood. And a wise pastor has defined faith as this, and and I subscribe to it. The humble trust with which we receive God's grace personally. Say it one more time. The humble trust with which we receive God's grace personally. Faith requires you receive something, a response to God's intervening work to save you. Think about our situation back in Thailand. The the naval diver shows up, 
try to combine two words there. The naval diver shows up to, to these boys. They, they see his equipment. They think he's a professional able to get them out. How silly would it have been for them to say, nah, I'm good, bro. No thanks. I heard they might send the submarine with snacks. I'd rather wait for that. Oh, you know what? I bet these waters, I could do this. I could swim out myself. No thanks makes no sense. No thanks makes no sense when you become aware of your great need for rescue. Until, though, until, though, you see that you are so far separated from God in sin, you're going to continue thinking, there's going to be something else come along. Surely Jesus isn't the only way. Or you're going to pridefully think, I could do this. I just got to get my stuff together. God will grade on a curve. I'm like two of the ten steps away from being that perfect person I long to be. No thanks makes no sense. And as your pastor, in love for you, I can't let you settle for vaguely familiar with Jesus instead of receiving his grace personally. The invitation that Jesus offers is not to be aware of me, not to be familiar with me, not to sit in on, my, on, on the words I've given you as if you're in a, a lecture class. The invitation is to believe in him, to follow him, to throw yourself completely on him and say, I have nothing but great need. I am stuck in that cave of my sin. I am drowning beneath the floodwaters of God's wrath. My only hope in life and death is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you, church, receive him personally if you have not yet done so? That is my invitation. No thanks makes no sense if you have yet to come to personal faith in Jesus. Today is not the day to say no thanks. Today is not the day to say no thanks. Today is the day to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, you are perfect. You have provided all that I need, and so I trust you with all that I am. I turn away from anything else and turn towards you in sole trust in your work on my behalf. This is a gracious salvation, don't forget. And this gracious salvation has come to us in a very generous gift. Our second point today, a generous gift, as we're going to hear in verse 8 to 9. Let's turn back to our Bibles. And this, the salvation we've been unpacking, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. Wow, how convicting. We are such a self-boasting people. We live in such a self-boasting society. And I don't make these accusations myself precluded. I say this fully looking in the mirror at the same time. We live in a society with companies that have taglines like, just do it. Just you. You can do it. We live in a society where we hear things like, be all you can be. Clean yourself up. You can be that perfect person. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The self-made man is the one we put on the cover of magazines, right? Where people naturally boasting. But the gospel presents to us a different message. The gospel says you are a needy person. The gospel says our God is a perfect provider. Salvation is not a result of works, lest anyone boast. It is the gift of God. Verse 8. Listen carefully. This... This, this, is not your own doing. It, it, 
is the gift of God. This and it. This and it. What is, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about God's grace? Is he talking about our faith? Yes. Is he talking about God's grace? Is he talking about our faith? Yes. It is a gift of God. God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. That's why it's called a gift. That's why it's called a gift. He gives to us. What is the best gift you've ever given someone else? Think with me for a moment. Think beyond those vacuum cleaners at Father's Day. (laughs) Yes. Think beyond any of the trivial gifts. What is the most heartfelt, sentimental gift you've ever given someone else? And why did you give it to them? It was a demonstration of your affection, your love. See, when Jen and I, my wife, we started dating, we were barely children. Teenagers. I I call them, yes. Still many look at me and say child. (laughs) We were young children, younger children at that point. And, And ignorant of love languages and ignorant to the fact that neither my then or soon to be wife and I were gift people, I decided to give her a gift because that's what society said do when you love someone. You, you give them a gift. So I conjured up all the energy and time I could to make this little Dear Jen box, little jewelry size wooden box to collect the letters that we wrote to each other while dating long distance. We dated on the opposite coasts for a while in college. So we had a little box to collect these things. And before you get, you know, illusions of grandeur in your head, this thing, (laughs) the Dear Jen box, was more like a fourth grade amateur art project than something you buy on Etsy. (laughs) But I made this little purple and white Dear Jen box motivated by love. Jen didn't earn it. She certainly didn't dream this thing up. She she, She didn't even know she wanted it until she received it. How much more is true about our salvation as a gift from God? Until the Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts, we don't see how beautiful the gift of God is. And my gift was not beautiful. God's gift to us in Christ is wondrously perfect and beautiful. That's where the analogy falls apart in many other ways. God gives us something we don't ask for even. We wouldn't even naturally ask for it. We are naturally content in our rebellion against him. But he opens the eyes of our hearts to help us see our need for him and then opens the eyes of our hearts to see his provision for us. That's how salvation works. This, it, gifts of God, not, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I need to be gracious and truthful here. Salvation is not a result of works. Salvation is not a result of perfect church attendance. Salvation is not a result of most scripture memorized or longest prayers prayed or if you're here every time the doors are open. Those are all good things. Those are all good things. But they shouldn't be God replacements. They shouldn't become barometers of righteousness. Our righteousness comes through the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ alone. Any of our works are the fruit of of salvation, not the root of salvation. And so it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We have no grounds for boasting because God saves after we sinned. It's God who worked, God who willed, God who accomplished all that we never could. You guys remember, there is more perfection in the life of Jesus Christ than there could be in any of us. Remember, there is more mercy in the death of Jesus than there is sin in us. Can you think about that? There's more mercy in Jesus than sin in us, as Richard Sibbs once said. 
And there is more power in the resurrection of Jesus than all of our collective might together. Guys, don't forget, there is more perfection in him, more mercy in him, and more power in him. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. When the glory of God and the humility of man are in their right place, we boast not in ourselves. We boast in the God who saves. See, guys, don't forget, our works worked ourselves away from God. It is God who worked to reconcile and forgive. It is God who worked to put death to death in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is God who worked to adopt us out of the eternal orphanage of sin into the eternal house of refuge with him. Don't forget, it is God who worked. And many of us, we want to work, don't we? It feels good to earn something. That's kind of how our society thinks and acts. And this is the same way in the first century. Jesus was approached with this question. It was almost as if the hearer of the, first, of the gospel proclamation thought, this is too good to be true. What do I do? What works must I do? And Jesus says in, in John chapter 6, verse 29, both truthfully and graciously, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If you are ever tempted to think that salvation is God's grace plus some, something else, including your works, don't forget, you are dead in sin, but God makes you alive in Christ. Period. This is the work of God, that we believe in him whom he has sent. When we believe in him, we stop boasting in ourselves, don't we? Our boasting ceases, and yet boasting is still so commonplace for us. The professional longs to boast in his resume. Look at all the promotions. Look at my bank account. The athletes boast in their trophies. The grandparents boast in those pictures of those most precious creatures to ever walk the face of the earth. I know that they are. They are. Amen. They are. But when we think of spiritual matters, when we think of our salvation, don't ever boast in anything of yourself. Don't ever boast of anything in yourself. The moment you do, you are robbing God of glory and you are robbing yourself of the joy of knowing how much he's done for you. The moment you boast in yourself, the moment you just, you rid the gospel of its deep complexity of what God has done to forgive you, past, present, future. When we celebrate and boast in Christ and the cross of Christ alone, All that we have left to do is say with the blind man that was healed in John chapter 9, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. If I know one thing, I was blind, but now I see. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy as well, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He describes himself as the worst of all sinners. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. What if that was the first thing you said every morning? One thing I know right now, God, I was opposed to you, but you saved me. How might that change the rest of your day? See, our boasting does, in fact, get in the way of our loving God and loving others rightly. When we boast in our works, we think we can demand things from God instead of graciously receiving whatever he desires to give or not give. When we are boasting in ourselves, we are quick to say, God, I demand you give me what I think is good for me. 
Or, God, I doubt your wisdom in not giving me what I've already asked for. We make indictments on him, accusations, when he's a perfectly good and heavenly father. We can't love God rightly if we're boasting in self. And in relation to this, we can't love others well if we're boasting in selves. See, if we are perched up on that pedestal of pride, thinking that in and of myself, I need, I have and need everything, I have everything I need, well, we default to things that demonstrate a lack of love for others. We'll be quick to gossip. And this is so pervasive in our culture. We'll be quick to speak poorly about. We'll be quick to speak behind other people's backs when they're not there, saying things we would never dream of saying to their faces, but somehow feeling we're worthy of saying them because we feel better about ourselves. But this is a demonstration of our misunderstanding of how salvation works. We've been saved, totally saved, forgiven. We have no grounds for speaking poorly about anyone behind anyone's back. And if we are boasting in Christ, we'll also be quick to forgive. We'll be quick to forgive. You know what's hard? Sinners living with sinners. (laughs) You know what the church is? Sinners gathering with sinners. Saved by Christ, redeemed, being sanctified, but still battling the presence of indwelling sin. And so we must not be surprised when we come to the need to forgive one another. To work through things that are difficult, we are not perfectly glorified yet. And so don't be surprised that your need to forgive is going to be frequent and often. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 32, forgive one another. This is an explicit command. Forgive one another. How? Not partially, but as God in Christ forgave you. Wow. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Is there someone in this room right now where you're harboring resentment or vengeance or you're withholding? Maybe that sounds really like bleak and dire and you're like, no, that's not me. Maybe you're just withholding your love to some degree from someone else in this room. That's an understa- or a demonstration of lack of forgiveness. I encourage you guys, when we remember that salvation is not a result of our works, we can boast in Christ and him crucified and we're free to forgive. We're free to forgive without needing the other person to forgive us first, without them earning or doing enough things to forgive us. That's what the Christian walk looks like. And it, honestly, I, write, I try to write these sermons early in the week so that I can pray for and speak with many of you throughout the rest of the week to consider what is God saying to our congregation specifically this week. And as I spent time over the last like Thursday, Friday, Saturday considering just us, I felt like the Lord was saying, Here are some things not to do, like I was just talking about. Things that get in the way of us loving God and loving others well. But there's some positives. Some things that he's encouraging us to do in this season. What does it look like to boast in Christ practically? What does it look like if we are echoing with the psalmist in Psalm 34? My soul makes its boast in the Lord. What does that look like practically day to day? First and foremost, I think it makes us a repentant people. A repentant people both individually before God and collectively with each other, we are open and honest about our deep need for God's grace. We are open and honest about our sin struggles. We don't brush them under the rug. We don't blame shift them onto someone else. We say, you know what? I am needy. I am a sinner saved by grace. I do need the power of the Spirit to live in me, conforming me to the character of Christ. I was reminded of this yesterday. 
We babysat for another child as if we needed another child under the age of 30 months in our house for four hours. But we did it out of love. And I thought I had the ability and the bandwidth to be patient and loving throughout. But I should know better. <laughs> I do. I, I, I struggled. I struggled. I struggled to be patient. I struggle to be loving. And it's, it's not a laughing matter in the sense of this is sin against God and against others. I have fallen short of being perfectly patient and loving. And I've seen this so much revealed to, to me in fatherhood. We told our best friend when we were pregnant, the first time we got pregnant, and he said, let the sanctification begin. <laughs> I chuckled like that, and then I realized he wasn't laughing. <laughs> Guys, I speak as a sinner saved by grace. We are a people, a, a group of sinners saved by grace. If we are going to be people who boast in Christ instead of ourselves, we must never downplay our need to repent. We must be people who, on our hands and our knees before God, morning after morning, say, God, I am so needy. I need, you to, I need your spirit to conform me to the character of Christ because I'm not waking up like that. I don't roll out of bed perfectly loving and perfectly patient. I'm an imperfect person, and I cling to your son's work to, to give me righteousness and then your spirit's power to make me like him. We will be a repentant people. Confession of sin is not something we shy away from, but instead we confess because, as First John 1 tells us, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What good news. See, the gospel says we are forgiven in Christ, but we don't know the deep depths of his grace until we acknowledge the deep depths of our depravity. We're a repentant people. And second, we are people who are immersed in scripture. I keep being reminded of, we want to be a humble people, boasting in Christ. Well, how are we formed to have this perspective? Isaiah 66, God speaks through Isaiah and says this in verse two. This is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. (sighs) He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know what this means? Our Bibles can't be coffee table decorations. Our Bibles can't sit beneath the magazines on the shelf. Our Bibles must be open. They must be worn out from use because we go to them needing to hear from God. Isaiah 55 says, Hear that your souls may live. When his word goes out, it never returns void, including in those dark, lonely moments when you're broken in sorrow and suffering, including those moments when you wake up so early in the morning because you know that's the only moment of silence you get before the children wake up. You're going to the Lord, not to check off the box of your reading plan, but to hear that your souls may live. And you know what you hear? You hear the promises of a living God who's saying, I am alive. I am working today. This day is brimming with redemptive potential because my son rose from the dead. Would you follow me? Would you listen to me? Would you build your life around this good news? We are a people who are repent of sin, immersed in scripture, and finally obedient to his commands. If we are going to boast in the cross of Christ, we will be a people who are obedient to his commands. And one of those commands is that we be baptized upon belief. See, baptism is a command that Christ gave to all of his followers. Repent, believe, be baptized. And hear me clearly, baptism doesn't save. Baptism does not save. But baptism pictures externally 
the inner spiritual salvation that God has brought about by his saving grace in the life of every believer. Baptism is a means through which we boast in Christ externally to the world. We say we are united to him in his life, death, and resurrection. I'm submerged under the water. Christ was submerged under God's wrath for me. I am raised up from that water. Christ was risen from the dead. And because I'm united to him in his life, death, and resurrection, so too am I. So if you've yet to be baptized since becoming a believer in Jesus, seriously consider it. Because I'm praying that we'll be able to have a baptism ceremony later this spring where we celebrate this obedience to his commands and the public boasting in Christ that baptism offers for every believer. If you've yet to be baptized, consider it right now. Write it on your tear-out section in the bulletin. Put it in the offering plate. And I'd love to talk this week. It's not a you will be baptized. It's an invitation to the conversation of what does baptism mean? Should I be baptized if I've yet to be baptized as a believer? Don't forget, church, you've received a gracious salvation. It's come to us as a generous gift in the person and work of Jesus. We boast in him only. And now in verse 10, one of the reasons he's done it is so that we would do good works as God prepared beforehand. Let's look, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The tags of many of our clothes, if we were to turn them inside out, what do they say? They say things like, made it in the USA, made in China, made in Turkey, made in uh, Mexico, Thailand. They're made by someone else, handcrafted together. If you were to turn the tags, so to say, of our souls inside out, you know what they'd say? Made by God before the foundations of the world. Does that change how you view yourself? Does that change how you view God? Made by God before the foundations of the world. We are his workmanship. It's like we are the demonstrations of his creative ability. He has penned the most beautiful poem ever as the eternal sonnet writer. He has filled the canvas of creation with people made in his likeness. And he hasn't just created us once and then fallen into sin forever. He actually recreates us in Christ Jesus. Listen to the rest of the sentence. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. At the moment that you profess faith in Christ, you are recreated. Recreated. No longer united to your first ancestor, Adam, the first Adam, but now united to the second Adam, the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. See, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation today. If you are in Christ, regenerated, given his spirit, united to him. That's what we've heard all throughout this letter. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Not just familiar with, not just kind of like him. You are united to him. And one of the reasons he's united you, he's, God has united you to Christ is so that you would do good works that demonstrate his glory. Continue on in this verse. He's created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a reason that verse 10 is not at verse 1. <laughs> There's a reason that verse 10 is not at verse 1. And here's why. If verse 10 were at verse 1, you know what you and I would think? Good works equals salvation. I got to do, do, do in, ho in hopes of God saying, all right. 
Good works are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root of it. That's worth saying again and slowly. Good works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of your salvation. You can't do enough good things to earn right graces with God. But when you know you've been saved by grace, all that you long to do is glorify God. Can you imagine what would change in your life if everything you did was in light of thanking God instead of trying to earn something from him? What would change? What would start? What would stop? How would you do things differently if everything you did was to thank God instead of try to earn something from him? That's the gift of salvation. We don't have to do anything to be saved except believe in him alone. And now we get to do everything to his glory, all to the praise of God's glory. And remember, God has prepared some things for us to do. He has not done this. He has not created us in Christ Jesus to us continually live to his glory. It says he's prepared these good works beforehand. If God has chosen you before the foundations of the world, as we heard in in chapter 1, don't you think he might have thought up some things for you to do in your life? Don't you think your life might have a purpose beyond comfort and pleasure? If you're chosen before the foundations of the world, and God says, I've prepared things for you to do beforehand, that means there are works, there are walks that will glorify him, and he's enabling you to do. Guys, we have the opportunity to glorify God together collectively in our lives as a church. We should prioritize these works. We should prioritize these works and not seek to depend on our own abilities to do them. See, God has called us to do good works, which he prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus both motivates these as he inspires humility, knowing that grace is a gift, but he also enables it because he gives us his spirit. He humbles us and then enables us. Here's what I mean. It's humbling to remember that every single one of Jesus' works on this life, in this, on this earth, in his life, death, and resurrection... We're for our good in God's glory. From Bethlehem to Calvary to the empty tomb. He walked himself into that garden of Gethsemane where he knew he'd face persecution and capture. He walked himself up before Pilate knowing the accusations would loudly reverberate. Crucify him, crucify him. How unjust. And yet he submitted himself to that. And then he walked himself up that hill on Golgotha, carrying the cross that you and I deserve to carry, going to the cross to be asphyxiated, crucified, bleeding, and and dying in our place to win our peace. How humbling. Salvation is not a result of our works. Salvation is the result of his works on our behalf. And after he rose from the dead, you know what he did? He lived amongst his disciples and then ascended after 40 days, and then the Spirit descended. See, the same Spirit that, was, that raised Christ from the dead now is alive in the, in the life of every believer. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead is alive in you, then He's surely giving life to your mortal bodies through that same Spirit. See, we are humbled when we consider His work for us, but then when we remember the promise of the Spirit, the, the Spirit that descends and fills every believer, we're enabled to do good works. You ever tried to do something good on your own abilities? How long does that last? <laughs> a day? A week at best? 
It's like taking a little shot of adrenaline and, and hoping to run a marathon on it. When you remember that the spirit of the living Christ is alive and at work in you, enabling you to do good works which God prepared beforehand, not only will you be aware of the purposes of God in the world in a unique way, but you'll be enabled and empowered to do those things that you thought you couldn't do. And it might start real mundane and real little. It might start by being patient with your spouse. Because we're, that's hard sometimes. Let's be honest. It might start by forgiving the one who wronged you, even if it's your neighbor. That's hard sometimes. We can't do that in our natural selves. But the Spirit enables it. See, if we are going to do the good works that God prepared beforehand, we often think of these big, grand, let me go to the other side of the world. And some of us are called to that. But we're all called to live as ambassadors of Christ. We're all called to live as domestic missionaries where God has put us. Carterville ain't an accident. Your job ain't an accident. Your spouse, your children, the same God who prepared these works from beforehand and knit you together in your mother's womb, guess what? He doesn't see these things as accidents. Nothing about your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday is mundane. Everything is sacred. If you have this view of God preparing good works for you to do, you will approach every opportunity and see the redemptive potential in it. Are you a parent or a grandparent? You're not just modifying behavior at home. You're forming hearts. You're forming hearts. You're exposing them to the good news of Jesus who's come to change their imperfect parents and and help to expose them to their need for Jesus. You're forming hearts, parents and grandparents. Are you a professional employee? At your job, you are stewarding God's grace in the world, and you have been placed near and around non-believers. You have the opportunity to be a domestic missionary from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. How many people travel all over the world seeking that? Are you retired? God has now given you more time for relationships and opportunity to pursue the kingdom of God than you might have had while you were previously employed. You can now pursue the kingdom of God with the vast majority of your hours instead of settling for the kingdom of your comfort, which you can't pack up in a U-Haul and take to heaven anyways. Guys, there are some works that are worth living for, aren't there? We will, when we realize that salvation has come to us as a gracious gift, as a gracious salvation, a generous gift, we will long to do these good works which God prepared beforehand. And so my encouragement to you is lose yourself in gospel ministry. Lose your life in gospel ministry. Wake up each morning just asking the question, what can I do today to most glorify God? And when you're at lunch, what can I do with the rest of my day to glorify God? Before you walk into the, into the door at home, how can I glorify God by loving my, my wife and my children, my husband and my kids? How can you glorify God in your life? That's a simple way to consider what does it mean to do the good works God's prepared for me? How can I glorify God in dependence on Jesus and, and to his praise? And finally, we do all of this. Our primary work is prayer. You want to start doing the works of God? Start praying. The Lord's work is done in the Lord's way, and he's invited us into that primarily through prayer. That's the first, the middle, and the last thing we do. Because in prayer, we acknowledge we can't and only God can. 
There are some good works that we just know we long to do and we can't. I long for my lost family and friends to know the Lord, but guess who can't open the eyes of their heart? I can't. You know who can? God can. And so I ask him. Many of us have lost friends, family, loved ones. The most important work we can do for them begins with prayer. And that fuels our love for them and our speaking of the gospel to them. But we begin with prayer, the Lord's work and the Lord's ways. There's so much more I obviously want to say. But for the sake of retention, <laughs> I, I will, I'm going to stop now and do what I just encouraged myself to do. I'm going to pray that God impresses the things he wants us to hear and remember from this passage, these three verses, that he impresses them on our hearts, that we would never, ever, ever forget that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A gracious and generous gift, all that we would glorify God in the works that he has prepared beforehand that we would do in him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we love you. We are a needy people. Father, we have swam ourselves away from you in our natural sin, and yet you have come towards us in the person and work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. We don't deserve him. We haven't earned this. We didn't even ask for it. But you and your mercy and your sovereignty have seen fit to offer it to us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would increasingly savor you, that we would delight in you, that we would boast in you, that we'd be quick to repent of sin, turn towards you, that we would enjoy you and follow you wherever you lead us. You'd make us alive to your purposes in the world as you concurrently make us deeply aware of your grace in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We need you. We ask that your spirit be leading and guiding this church, that we would remember we are gifted to glorify you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.